You're listening to Campus Review Radio. This is Carl Treacher, and I'm joined by Martin Betts. We're the founders of HEDEX, and our podcast explores the changing landscape of the higher education sector in association with Campus Review. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Another episode of HeadX. Martin, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Carl. How are you? I'm well. I'm keeping quite well. Interesting uh, episode ahead, I understand. Oh, so this is going to be fascinating, actually. I think this is one that's going to get really at the heart of a lot of our issues about student expectations, student success, the opportunities with differentiated strategies and digital and the like, and, and a very timely one for where we are now in semester two. So just before we get into into our guest, we've uh, we're coming we've passed the midway of 2021. We're heading into the last uh, last 300, if or, if I'm using an Olympics uh, expression. Um, uh, yeah, a few things are happening in the in the sector. Is there anything that uh, that stood out to you in the last couple of months? Well, I, th- I think there was lots of expectation through semester one of um, maybe that will be the last semester in some parts of Australia where we'd have the fully online experience that students didn't respond so well to at the end of 2020. There was a lot of hope and, um, and promoting of expectations that would have classes back on campus for semester two. I mean, up, up here in Queensland, I think just about all of our three big civic universities got students onto campus for the start of semester. And then very quickly had to ask them all to go home again and send all their staff home. So um, it just feels like it's more of the same, but perhaps becoming even more challenging and long term having to find alternative ways of delivering education is where it feels like up to it to me at the moment. Don't know about what's happening in business. Oh, look, before I get to business, I'm interested to know how students are adapting to this. You know, given that students uh, can be highly adaptive, is this something where initially it was quite inconvenient, but now it's more of the norm and students are, are sort of embracing this and rolling with the punches? Well, I think there's, um, I, I, I think the jury might be out on that. I mean, we, we've reflected on the student um, satisfaction survey data from 2020 at the end of last year and said that at the time that that was a short-term blip, blip um, because it was a response to the immediate reactions of moving online. I think we've talked about hybrid ever since and are we finding ways of offering our education both in face-to-face and online experiences through 2021. But we've been sort of hoping and keeping our fingers crossed that everything will get back to normal. And I'm just not sure that a concept of normal face-to-face delivery on campus from all of our universities is ever going to be the normal for the future. And sure, we now know how to move back online again quickly. We've practiced that many times. But is the experience that we're delivering for our students really what they want? I mean, we we see this in commentary about schools as well as universities. I think the, the, the current crop of students in our universities, for sure, are having really quite challenging experiences. Their mental health is something we need to be concerned about. And we need to, I think, turn more of our attention to meeting their expectations and guaranteeing their success. Absolutely. Look, why don't we jump into our guest for today and then talk a little bit more about that afterwards? Okay. Well, she's got um, a lot to say about the issues of, of thinking about students as, as important people in the exercise um, and a lot to say about how online education can be, can be grasped as an, an opportunity to try and deliver that. So Patricia Davidson, or Trish, as she's known, is our guest this week, the Vice-Chancellor of Wollongong. And yeah, I think it would be great to give her a listen. 
Our guest today on HEDEX is Patricia Davidson, who commenced as Vice-Chancellor at the University of Wollongong in New South Wales in May of this year, after nearly eight years spent as Dean and Professor in the School of Nursing at John Hopkins University in the US. Trish, welcome to HEDEX. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Martin. That's fabulous. And Trish, you've started as Wollongong's Vice-Chancellor back at a place where, in my understanding, you undertook your own undergraduate studies. Um, and since then, you've most recently had eight years away from Australia in the US. I, I wonder if you can help us all understand what a return to Australia, to New South Wales and to Wollongong in the middle of a pandemic to take up the reins of being a, a vice chancellor. What's it been like and how have you been able to settle in? Firstly, the last year and a half in the US was really hard. Uh, I think now as we're recording, New South Wales is just starting to feel what a pandemic is really like. But during my time in the US, particularly as the Dean of Nursing at Johns Hopkins, I was very embedded in the health system. Many of my students and colleagues were at the front line. And look, it was really tough. When you think about the number of people who have died in the United States, in the richest country in the world, it's just sort of deplorable. So it was a really tough time. And so coming back to Australia, um, was wonderful. <laughs> you know, firstly, family, um, you know, when you're there, uh, you know, there were dark days when I thought I might not get home. Um, and it's a very different time to when, as I think other people have said, when you knew if something happened, you could be home in 24 hours. Sort of knowing that you couldn't, couldn't be home. Um, and also, you know, the University of Wollongong, the position as vice chancellor is such a, a great opportunity but also during that time in the US, um, and particularly the challenges of the Trump era, <laughs> I really, you know, you think about where your value alignment is and where, where you feel that you, you're going to be most comfortable and most productive in society. And it's just great to be home. Oh, I, can, I can imagine that to be the case. And I can see that in, in, in your face as you um, go through that description. So I first came across your commencement at Wollongong and, and first came across you by seeing some social media announcements that accompanied an announcement on your university website that went under the title of Kindness is Hugely Underrated. And the article that accompanied that headline went on to paint a picture of how you saw surrounding yourself with great people as your priority. And you expressed a commitment to something called servant leadership. Now, these are not necessarily words that we're all used to hearing associated with the way that some vice chancellors and leaders of organizations like to portray themselves. I wonder if you can give us an insight into what you, how you would describe your approach to leadership and how that's playing out for you in these challenging times in what I think we're coming towards the end of the first 90 days for you in this leadership role. Firstly, you know, I think you realise in life that in many ways you're privileged. And not, not that my life has been easy the whole time, far from it. But I think particularly, you know, seeing real alienation and marginalization, particularly in the US, where you see the very best and the very worst of life, you realize, boy, you're pretty privileged. You're white. You have an access to an education, thanks to Gough Whitlam and all of those great heroes of Australia. And you really think that it's important that you sh we should be in some ways paying back. The other thing is, you know, I'm a nurse, proudly a nurse, and there is such amazing satisfaction of caring for someone. 
And it, it's interesting, even in the US, there's lots more nurses now in very senior leadership positions. Actually, at Johns Hopkins, you know, the number one hospital, the whole head of the health system of the $9 billion operation is a nurse. So I think what you learn in nursing is it's not about you. It's about the patient. And you learn to work in a team. And then I think if you're smart, you realise if you surround yourself with smarter people than you, you're going to be a better team and you're going to be more successful. So that's a bit of my approach to, to leadership. And I think it's not unique to me, to, particularly for many people of my age bracket. You know, um, you look back and you think, look, yes, it's always great to get that NHMRC grant and it's great to get that publication. But, boy, it's a great feeling if it's your mentee. So I think there should be a lot more generosity and kindness and collaboration in the academy. And my Johns Hopkins experience really emphasised that. That's um, fascinating. We, we, some of our previous HeadX podcast guests, including um, Giselle Burns and Marcia Devlin, have commented about now being perhaps a time when compassion in leadership was important and necessary. And you just used um, the, the example there of the comparison between you getting an NHMRC grant and a mentee doing it. Uh, another of our guests, Margaret Scheel, has commented on the place of indices for mentoring and for collaboration maybe being as important as the H-index citation measures that we conventionally make of academic work. I wonder if you can help me understand why do you think some of these ideas and compassionate leadership in particular is so important at this point in time in our universities in 2021? Well, I think everybody would say that the university system in Australia has been decimated. That's probably a bit dramatic, but not decimated in the point of being destroyed and not being functional. In fact, you know, I think the business continuity of Australian universities has been phenomenal. But, you know, the need to cut jobs the vicarious suffering. You know, I can't tell you how many people, even today I was on a board meeting and uh, for one of our research centres at Wollongong and the person said, you know, there's been a lot of trauma and a lot of angst. You know, it's not fun seeing your colleagues lose their jobs. So I think particularly at the moment, you need to understand where people are at. And I think the pandemic really really taught me that even even in nursing in healthcare you know um, I had some of my faculty who who were just at the front lines who were just running it running out into the danger and this is really at the beginning when we didn't have an adequate PPE and then an, then another group of people that just really wanted to get under the bed till it all went happened so I think it really makes you realize that when there's a challenge when there's you know, a real threat, people are going to act differently. And so you need to be understanding and asking more questions <laughs> rather than giving information. Fascinating. And I can see so much of your background as a nurse coming through in your, your values and your beliefs and your approach to leadership. Um, I mentioned Marcia Devlin there as one of our previous guests. Um, she had much to say in, in the episode that we recorded and the book that she's written that we're launching as part of HeadX Live events. She had much to say about gender disparity in our sector. And um, as Wollongong's, as I understand it, first female VC, I wonder what your observations are about gender disparity 
in Australian universities, how it compares with the US situation, and maybe any lessons that you draw from such a comparison about what we need to do about it to create more diverse, equitable and inclusive gen- cultures more generally in our universities in this country? You know, I think across globally, across the sector, there is huge gender disparities. And, you know, not at, not at the entry level, it's who gets to the top. And so I think, again, it comes back to how do we create workplaces that are supportive and enabling that allow everybody, men and women, to fulfil their roles. I mean, when we also we look at attempts to, to make paternity leave available, very few men take it because they also feel stigmatised by their caregiving. Um, so I think it's when we, how we differentiate between what is leadership, um, strength, you know, uh, being able to sustain anything, and weakness, and sometimes some of the, the, the skills, which I call essential skills, you know, uh, communication, humility, emotional intelligence, are not as valued. And I just think we need to create more kinder work environments where, where, where you actually work as a team. Um, and while, while ever we have working environments that are not, conducive to, in particular for women, the role of motherhood, we are excluding a huge percentage of the population. You've been talking very um, eloquently and clearly about some of the experiences that staff in your university and you as a leader and staff in the sector generally have been experiencing. And I wonder if we might move from that to explore some of the issues around what our students are experiencing and what they think about it. I'm sure that must be very critical to you in your thinking about where Wollongong goes in the future and new strategic thinking. What what are you planning to do to build a culture that will lead to improved student experiences for Wollongong students in the way that you see the future unfold? Well, you know, I really think for students, we need to think about preparing students who are life ready. You know, people, you know, they talk about job ready. Well, you know, the job that someone graduates from university today is likely all the data tells us in 20 years time it's likely not going to be there so I think we need to prepare students for rapid changes in the world we need to prepare them for digitalization and we need to prepare them from for some uncertainty you know like many educators one of the greatest worries that we have is the mental health of our students and you know many sadly many universities every year you know face the tragedy of suicide and so to me i think we need to prepare students who are going to thrive in society who are going to value themselves and others you know there's so much competition and so much pressure on younger people I mean, I know people say that a lot, but I really see it um, um, amongst young people. And I think it's the pressures around them. Uh, I'm not sure. I kind of think maybe I just sort of bumbled along and maybe many of my friends did. But, you know, I think there's definitely a lot more pressures on. So what we need to do, um, and I think at the moment I really worry about this period of shutdown. I really worry about this period of, social isolation for many students and 
and add a bit and add quality in there um, is is huge. So I think we need to create better communication and support structures for students. So you're, you're talking a lot there about digital skills and the changing future of work and um, the particular challenges for our students in times of isolation, social isolation and, and, and lockdown. You recently wrote um, about education potentially becoming available anywhere and any time, I think, were the words that you used in, in your title uh, or some of them. And um, it was portrayed uh, as, as part of the great expectations of online education. That was a very optimistic note and way of describing it. And I, I wonder if you can help us understand in a bit more detail as what do you see as the great opportunities for Wollongong and other Australian universities in domestic and international markets in the, the new online learning paradigms that we've created and the counterpoint to that, perhaps, are there pitfalls to be avoided with those great expectations? Well, I do like the idea of tailoring education to the needs of the individual. And we've talked about it. I think in that article I wrote, you know, I remember I did a major in education and learned all about NOLs and adult learning and student senate. But many of it, that has not really sort of been enacted. And part of it is, is the experience of, uh, of seeing what online can do. I think online um, it's, it can be very emancipatory. It can increase participation. And for some people it can be alienating, but I have not seen that. And one of my really impactful experiences was at the beginning of the COVID pandemic um, at Johns Hopkins, we were the WHO Collaborating Centre Secretariat for Nursing and Midwifery. And someone said, you know, we really want you to do a course on nursing in a time of crisis. So I looked around my school and there was really no one I could ask um, to do this. So I actually curated the content for the class. Can I tell you, the participation from all around the world and the sharing was just phenomenal in those and I think the other thing is just getting a certificate. There's so many people that are hungry in many low and middle income countries. And so I really believe that education is a transformative force for good. And it's like, yes, there might be a Rolls Royce model where, you know, you have this boutique and you are, have a six to one teacher student ratio and everything's done. But then we're only ever going to, you know, we're days back to the days of Oxford and Bologna and, you know, where we're just creating this elite class. Whereas I see online education, like anywhere, anytime, any place, as an opportunity to accommodate people who have to work and to accommodate different learning styles. You know, probably the ideal is, you know, a blended learning environment where you have you know, where you really have a flipped classroom, where you have access to a whole lot of expertise. And that's the other great thing. Um, someone was talking about a class the other day at Wollongong to teach something. And I said, oh, I, I'll get this person. They're an expert in HIV. So I can call someone from the other side of the world and can give a class. I think basically online has got a bit of a bad rap. And I think there's probably, if you go to many university websites, there's probably some pretty tragic voiceover PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> but again, um, we can change that. 
And then the other thing that I love about online is it increases accountability and transparency. Now, I can I tell you when I first started teaching, you know, without a word of a lie, would I can remember getting into work, you know, an hour earlier to, to do my transparencies on those acetate papers. Oh, gosh. And which I was kind of winging it a bit. <laughs> now, even me, you know, um, you know, I've got to think about my objectives. I've got to think about my grading rubric. You know, I've got to think about all of those things. So I think it is a quality measure, but it's not going to work for everybody. But it will certainly, if we look at the normal distribution, and you'll probably like this being an engineer, I think, you know, if we look at a normal distribution, you know, there's 25% of people who will do well regardless. Even if the teachers are terrible and the material, they're going to do well. 25% of students need diligence and really targeted attention. But, you know, if we can capture that group in the middle, we can really achieve a lot of efficiencies. Um, they're, they're just some of my thoughts. That's a fascinating analysis of, of the opportunities and maybe expectations get raised at, at, at times of challenge and, and, and the particular circumstances we're going through. Going through. Do, do you foresee that, that we'll see more differentiated strategies, more new business models, more differentiated brands and operating models for maybe yours and other off, uh, Australian universities, that, that such things well, emerge in the period ahead where online becomes dominant in those positions? I think... Part of the problem with us, that you know, Australian universities, we're all kind of the same, and there's only 24 million people in the country. I think we need to have more market segmentation and differentiation. One of the things I learned at Hopkins is you can't do everything, but what you do, you've got to do really well. And particularly at this challenging time, you know, one thing that I've been really encouraged about coming back. Um, and I, admittedly, I've never been in a, a leadership position like this, but I've been really impressed by the collaboration and collegiality across um, the sector. Mm. Genuine, you know, collegiality. Whereas, you know, before I, when people had spoken about these other universities, it was like they were the competitors. So, you know, I think that's part of the potential. And for some people, the online will work really well. And for other people, particularly if they've got some particular learning issues or their learning style or they'll, you know, they can um, choose other models. But I think what is really important that we need to be upfront and transparent with, with our students so that they know what they're delivering. And also, can I tell you, there will be also some self-selection of professors or academics, some who like to do it in other areas. And can I tell you, it's like telehealth. I had colleagues in the US who would thought telehealth was like substandard. And then when there was no option, people embraced telehealth. And lo and behold, they said, oh, I, actually, it's good. I, I get to meet this, my patient's brother who I mm -hmm. never heard. And I actually, they can get the camera and say, this is, this is what I've got. Um, so I just think it's about being open and, and inquiring and not being judgmental and 
you know, online is not inferior. So, so if you think that there's a real potential future for some, if not all of our universities to make online a dominant player in the future, what do you think are the, the culture changes on the one hand, and maybe what attitude we might need to show as universities towards forming partnerships to other providers in that space? If, if we're going to successfully deliver new strategies, business models, and deliver on expectations to our students with a more substantially online-based, differentiated strategy in one of our universities? Well, you know, one of the exciting things, it's actually sort of happening. You know, there's a new alliance that is, which is a, a collaboration between UNSW, UNSW, University of Wollongong, Western Sydney, and Newcastle. And... Exactly that. They're collaborating on courses in cybersecurity. Um, so I, I just think there is a lot of opportunity. You know, what I think we've got to be very thoughtful and intentional is that we don't totally lose what a university is. Um, and as we know, as many experienced teachers, and which, which can I tell you, I'd often, as particularly as a dean of a nursing school, been very kind of concerned about is, is what are the values and norms that you learn from, you know. So I think it's not saying it's got to be all online, but but we can, I think blended models is going to be the way to be. And, and also I think we need to be much more thoughtful and intentional about relationships uh, because probably all of us look at the people that we met when we were at university who have been become not just lifelong friends but um, also our lifeline in our careers you know who can you pick up the phone and say look I'm drowning help me give me some advice but I just think it's just such a time of um, disruption and then the other thing that I've seen in from the US model which is different here is how aggressive the for-profit sector can be and, you know, it's kind of like, unless we lead it, someone else is going to come into the market and maybe not do it quite as well. Because the difference is, you know, it's not to say it's an inferior product, but one of the great things that I think about a university is you, it's not just about the teaching and learning and the material. It's about research-inspired teaching. And it's also about the notion of service to the community and values. And so... I think you can do that if you, you know, if you plan, but also we see some providers that it's really about the check and not about the student. And we, that's not a good option either. My last question to you as we bring the interview to a close, I, I think I already know the answer to this from having talked to you now for a little while is, are, are you excited about starting out as a vice chancellor Wollongong in these times that come with such a variety of challenge, but also as you're seeing it, the opportunity of great expectations? Does this excite you? It does excite me. Um, and, you know, I think I really learned a lot in the US. You know, uh, it's, there's a lot, it's not that it's tra immediately transferable, but it certainly has given me different skills. Um, I'm really, my time at Johns Hopkins really amplified to me the importance of education as a transformative force. It really taught me about excellence without elitism. 
which I just think is such an important thing. And, you know, like many people, you know, yes, I do have sleepless nights about the budget, <laughs> seriously, and about the thought of any job cuts. That bit is daunting, but I do feel really motivated and empowered that it's the knowledge, research, discovery that's going to get us through. And, you know, meeting with our students, I meet, have been meeting regularly with our Student Advisory Council. I'm motivated and inspired by the young people who really want to make a difference in the world. And um, this will be my last gig. I will be, you know, um, so I'm going to give it everything I can for the University of Wollongong to continue on its, on its trajectory. And I also hope that, particularly in a place like Wollongong, that we can really make a mark, that we can really address some issues of health equity, social justice, and make a difference in the world. Well, I can see you're excited. I can see you're focused. I hope you get some sleep at some point. Um, but in <laughs> time, you're clearly going to make a difference. And for joining us today on HeadEx, Trish, as um, a vice chancellor in their first 90 days at an exciting university having come back from the US, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Martin. I feel excited talking to you. You'll get me through my next couple of hours of Zooms. <laughs> well, I'm glad, to, I'm glad that we can make some difference. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Lovely to talk to you. So what did you make of that then, Carl? Well, Patricia, um, kindness is underrated. You know, uh, compassion, contemplation, a sense of authenticity. She's saying all the things and she sounds very much like someone who is a, a leader that's required right now. And um, also of the profile of the more successful leaders that I've seen in um, broader commercial circles. So, uh, look, the more we get of Trish uh, on the program and in the sector, the better. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm always struck that in universities, we tend to have specialists out of disciplines that rise to the ranks of leaders. And it's really interesting to observe how the different first disciplines of different leaders drive how they come across in their universities and how their behaviour plays out. I mean, I worked under VCs that were variously political analysts, social workers and lawyers, and it wasn't hard to tell which was which. Um, and they all had strengths that grew out of their disciplines, of course. I've never worked under a nurse as a vice chancellor, but I'd have to say, listening to Trish, that would be a good bet right now if you're a member of staff or a student in one of our universities. No, oh, I loved it. I, I, I love the fact that she's so human and so openly human and, and um you know, in business, we find so many, we have found, particularly over the last 20 years, a lot of um, leaders and CEOs feeling that they have to be professional and talking to a, this professional sort of persona and working through a, a, a language that doesn't actually resonate with everyone. And so what I loved about Patricia was she's a real person saying real things that really matter. And that's what the future of, of leadership leadership has to be. Uh, I I, I pull my hair out when I see the appointment of board leader, um, non-executive directors and CEOs most of the time, to be honest, across uh, the bigger industries in uh, outside of higher education. People have very good CVs, great competency, but do they have what you know Trish calls, she said something like um, the essential skills. She was talking about soft skills and you know, listening and, and communicating effectively and having high emotional intelligence. You know, the things that We've noticed now through every diagnostic that you could pick up that this is actually the hallmark of the better operators and the better leaders of the future. She is that. And yet we look over the fence into some of the banking and, uh, and you know, telco and a few other sectors that I unfortunately have to deal with. And 
it's torture. It's torture watching people who actually don't care about other people, who are really just slaves to shareholders, making decisions that um, put a lot of pressure on everyone else. And, and to Trisha's point, you know, that pressure can end up with severe mental health issues and in some instances, the increasing rate of suicide. So there are real world implications for poor leadership. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, one word that I really like in the context of leadership is is empathy. And Trish commented on how nurses know that it's not about them or their fellow um, health practitioners. It's about the patients. Well, to, to, to exactly the same point in the higher education sector, we spend a lot of time as leaders in university looking to government and, and what they're doing or not doing. And we have a lot of staff in our universities looking to what colleagues are doing and their own leaders are doing we all need to get a relentless focus on the student i know we don't like calling them customers but they are the people that the universities are there to serve they are the 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 young people that are are suffering at the most at the moment i think and a relentless focus on their experience and making sure that their expectations are delivered on through the through the rough ride of what we're all um, being presented with, is has got to serve you well in this competitive environment right now. You know, Trish said some some interesting things uh, about about the USA, particularly and working in the states. And I was going to ask you about this because I'm I'm fascinated. And I think Australia we're in much much greater risk here in terms of brand equity or experience equity, right? Which is uh, in the states, p- uh, kids go off to to study and generally live on campus more often than not. And so that becomes a real sort of life you know story of their life a bookmark in their life new friendships new cohorts we don't necessarily have that here you know we don't have that in australia so if the industry is under threat and trisha and patricia talked about um for profit coming in and how well they do generally when they decide to do something and are we in danger if we don't get this right of a for-profit brand uh coming in and actually turning it up uh, I feel like the, the Australia is a little bit more vulnerable than the USA here because we don't have that emotional attachment to the university experience. You know, in America, you cut years in college, it's a big deal. You've got friends for life. Here, look, that happens to some extent, but there's nowhere near the brand equity or experience equity as there is there. So if there was a play by a big tech company or a profit for-profit um, brand that decided to have a stab, I feel like it's, uh, it's low-hanging fruit to some extent. I think you're really hitting it on the head there. I mean, I worked for many years in in the advancement parts of different universities that were really focused on the um, emotional attachment of students and graduates to their university. And I think one of the phenomena you find in, in, in the Australian setup is that we probably have more of our emotional commitment to our high schools than we do to our our tertiary institutions in in stark contrast to the situation in other parts of the world. So we can't rely on that being part of the under, underlying culture. We've got to build it in different ways. And being focused on the students is, is key. Um, I mean, the other thing that I found so fascinating with the way that um, Trish broached that subject is that we, we, we talked in the introduction to the episode about the going in and out of being an on, online mode or providing a campus experience. While we can't rely on certain campus experiences, you've got to build that emotional attachment in different ways. And to try and do that in, in an online setting, she sure she t- talked about competition from the not for or from the for-profit sector, but she saw hope in thinking about the student and not about the check, because ultimately it is the student that will pay, and ultimately it will be about them having their expectations 
met by the experiences and there's every opportunity for compassionate leadership and great cultures and our universities having that achieved in online environments just like they have been prior to this last couple of years in campus environments. Mm. And I think to I look to uh, the Australian Institute of Company Directors, which is the uh, the organisation that prepares board directors and uh, works with you know, large organisations around governance. Uh, one of the things that they talk about is um, why does an organisation exist? And they're not talking about um, just just a uh, shareholder-based public listed company, but they say why do organisations exist? And, and their definition is to make money. It's literally their definition. And I, I find that to be at one end of the scale and it's a dirty, grubby, um, uh, irrelevant, um, <laughs> not my favourite end. Uh, and the other end of the scale, you've got uh, Patricia saying that, you know, the work that we do here, whether we're delivering vocational skills that set them up for um, success, you know, in their professional career or whichever direction they want to go. But, you know, it's a responsibility, almost a community and social responsibility to prepare them for life. And so this life, this concept of life readiness, um, that, that we have a role to play beyond um, getting people ready for their roles. I find that fascinating because I think there's a couple of different minds that said there's a type of student that just wants to get the not get uh, knowledge or get um, capability and competency that leads them to achieve their particular goal. And there's others that actually travel through life in a more contemplative manner and they want to experience things in a much deeper and richer, richer way. And I feel that we need to start segmenting a little bit for both of those a bit better than we currently do. Yeah, it's an interesting mix, isn't it? We've got We've got all of this phenomena of the pandemic going on which is disrupting so much of our normal current practices and compassion and kindness towards staff and being relayed onto students will serve us well for that at the same time we've got a digital disruption going on and lots of fundamental questions being asked about the purpose of organizations what 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 i took in a helicopter view from Trisha's overall interview with us is that she's got a beautiful combination of that compassionate kind approach to leadership with an understanding of the purpose of universities and the importance of students and transforming lives together with a complete openness to see that new technologies and disruption can lead to a more emancipatory and different way of delivering that for the 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 the, the current period i i mean i i think that sort of combination of different values and a very entrepreneurial mindset in the in the context of the special purpose of universities is going to serve successful leaders as they emerge particularly well and will set them apart. And I, I think we've heard a, a great interview there and it's a university that I'll hold much hope for. I bet there's a lot of people working there, really pleased that they're working there right now. I'm sure as well. And look, that's all we have time for on this episode of HeadX. Thanks again, Martin. Thanks, Carl. 